Well, good morning, and great to see all of you again this morning. Uh, today is the second sermon of a five-week series on the Reformation and the five solas of the Reformation. So it, it goes along uh, something like this. Uh, we are saved by faith alone, um, by grace alone, through faith, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And so each week we're going to look at each one of those. Last week we looked at how we're saved by faith alone, and today we'll be looking at how it's all revealed in Scripture alone. Uh, so if you missed last week's sermon, let me encourage you to hear it uh, and listen to it. Uh, it should be on our website uh, because it gives you the context uh, that you need to understand uh, this entire series. So let me pray for us as we open up Scripture and continue our series. Uh, Lord Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself so clearly that when you speak, uh, your words do not return empty. Uh, we pray, Father, as we open up Scripture this morning and are reminded of the Reformation and the work of our brothers uh, uh, and their sacrifice many years ago, uh, may we appreciate not only what they have done, but more so what you have done for us in Christ. Uh, for we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, so after two years, um, two years after Luther nails the 95 Theses, he goes to Leipzig uh, for a public debate uh, with Johann Eck, uh, which we heard about last week. Johann was a learned man, a highly respected uh, Dominican friar. He was appointed by the Pope to respond to Luther uh, to defend the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the debate uh, concerned purgatory and penance and many other things, but at the heart of it, Eck wanted to trap Luther. Uh, he wanted to uh, 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 make Luther and force Luther into a corner and answer once and for all, who has ultimate authority, the Bible or the Pope? Now this was a very important question because from Augustine to Aquinas and into the late Middle Ages, there was a movement away from the Bible to the Pope. No longer did people read the Bible for themselves. Uh, all they did was listen to the teachings of the church. And so by the 16th century, the church taught that God reveals himself not only through scripture, but also through the traditions of the church. As a result, the Bible was dethroned and no longer did it reign supreme. It was no longer the only source of authority for the church. As a result, uh, this meant that the Bible became more obscure and less read, and the Pope became more powerful and more revered. Uh, so what you now have in the 16th century uh, are two sources of authority, uh, the Bible and the Pope, uh, the Bible being the written word of God and the Pope being the bearer of Jesus' teachings that have been passed down orally through the generations beginning with the Apostle Peter. Uh, this was confirmed at the Council of Trent in 1546. Uh, it says, the traditions of the fathers are seen as a second doctrinal source which does not simply unfold the contents of Scripture, and listen to this, but adding its own substance complements Scripture content-wise. That means that the, whole, uh, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that the Bible is sufficient uh, for them, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God, about salvation, about Christian conduct. Uh, so even though the Bible doesn't talk about purgatory or, or the need for repentance, purgatory and repentance are doctrinally sound according to the Roman Catholic Church, and it must be believed because it's part of church tradition. For Roman Catholics, these doctrines 
complement and add content to what the Bible says. And the problem is this, when the Bible uh, and tradition contradict each other, when there's a difference between what the Bible says and what tradition says, guess which one wins? It's tradition. Tradition will trump the Bible all the time. We saw this last week, didn't we? Even though the Bible says that justification is by faith alone, but because tradition and the tradition of the church and the teachings of the Father says that penance and purgatory are necessary for purification, then the church must be right and the Bible's wrong. Whatever the church has always taught and done is as authoritative, if not more authoritative, than what the Bible says and teaches. And, and you see, this happens all the time. Whenever you pitch something else against the Bible, and you say, say oh, no, no, it's, it, it, it only clarifies the Bible, it only adds to the Bible, it only teaches us something to, to clear up what the Bible is trying to say, what this book is, what this tradition is, will always trump the Bible. Let me give you two examples. Uh, one example from daily life, uh, from, from what we see even today, and one from the Bible, from Scripture. So years ago, you might have had this experience as well. Uh, two men rocked up to my door. They were wearing white shirts and a, a, a black tie, and they knocked on my door. They were Mormons. Uh, and so they wanted to come in to talk to me about Mormonism and about Jesus. And so I invited them in and had a good chat with them. And then they started talking about the Book of Mormons. And so I asked them, well, why isn't the Bible sufficient? Why do we need the Book of Mormons? Why can't we just read the Bible and know about salvation, about Jesus? And they said to me, well, the problem is that when you have a Bible, it's not anchored. You see, if you put the Bible on the table, it can face any direction. You can move it around. But when you have the Book of Mormons, what you have is that it actually then points you exactly where you need to go. It anchors the Bible for you. And so it shows you how to get to heaven. And so what happens is that without the Book of Mormons, you can never get to heaven. The Bible's insufficient. With the Book of Mormons, it points you in the right direction. And so what happens with the Mormonism is that the Book of Mormons is the go-to book. It trumps the Bible. It's more important because it interprets for you what the Bible says. God isn't clear enough. You need someone else to explain it to you. Let me give you another example. This time from the Bible. So you might know the story in Mark chapter 7. Uh, Jesus uh, and his disciples are eating, uh, but they haven't washed their hands. And so the Pharisees noticed this, and, and they accused Jesus uh, and his disciples of failing to follow the traditions of the elders. Because before they eat, they were meant to ceremonially wash their hands so that they might be ceremonially clean, so that they might be holy. And so because they haven't ceremonially washed their hands, they're considered unholy, and so they can't do certain things like go to the temple. So the Pharisees asked Jesus in verse 5, in Mark chapter 7, verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to what? According to Scripture? No. According to Moses? No. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So you see here, right, the, elders are bas- uh, the, the Pharisees are basically saying, your disciples are defiled because they've got defiled hands, because they haven't followed the traditions of the elders. It's not because they haven't followed the tradition or the teachings of Moses or Scripture or the Pentateuch. 
And so Jesus says to them, verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human traditions. That is, you're holding to your traditions and not the commands of God, not the Bible. And so the Pharisees have essentially placed their traditions above the word of God. Disobeying the tradition was now equivalent to disobeying God. But what Jesus says is that when, when you do that, human tradition trumps the Bible. It nullifies the word of God. Verse 13 says this, Thus Jesus says to them, you nullify, you make irrelevant the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. You see, the, Phar- the, the, the Pharisees were completely wrong. The disciples had done nothing wrong. They didn't have to ceremonially wash their hands according to the traditions of the elders. But the Pharisees have made it so important that to not do that was to disobey God. But by saying that, they had nullified the word of God. And in a similar way, in the 16th century, even though the Bible and the traditions of the church were meant to be two equal sources of God's revelation, the reality is that the tradition of the church trumped the Bible. No longer was the Bible the go-to book for Christians, but the Pope was. The traditions of the church had nullified the word of God. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church went so far as to say that the authority of the Bible comes from the Pope. So in response to Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the church made this statement. Whoever does not hold fast to the teachings of the Roman Church and of the Pope as the infallible rule of faith from which even Holy Scripture draws its strength and authority is a heretic. So they're saying that the Pope gives the Bible authority. The Pope has trumped the Bible. Now, leading up to the Reformation of the 16th century, there were some who were declared heretics by the church, not because they didn't believe the Bible, but precisely because they believed that the Bible alone is sufficient and it must be held in high regard the only source of authority in all matters of faith and Christian practice. So some of these men you might have heard of, like John Wycliffe from England, who was condemned as a heretic by the church at the Council of Constance in 1384. There was also Jan Hus from Prague, who was condemned by the church for heresy in 1415 and burnt at the stake. And in this debate that Luther had with Eck in Leipzig, Eck accuses Luther of being a disciple Jan Hus, a heretic. Now Luther's horrified immediately because Luther never wanted to break away from the church. He wanted to reform the church to help the church go back to the Bible and to repent of its ways. And so he never saw himself as a heretic. He thought in good faith that the Roman Catholic Church had just forgotten what the Bible had said. And so he just wanted to bring them back to the original source. And so Luther's horrified to be accused as a heretic. He's no heretic. He doesn't want to be associated with heretic. However, during a a break in the debate, Luther goes to the library and he looks up Hus. And he realizes that X right. Luther realizes that he's more in line with Hus than he's with Rome. And so when the debate resumes, Luther admits that X is right. He says, I assert that a council has sometimes erred, that is, said the wrong thing or declared the wrong or decreed the wrong thing, sometimes they get it wrong and may sometimes err. Nor has a council authority to establish new articles of faith. That is the Bible sufficient. The councils and the councils of the church can't add content to the Bible. So Eck replies, Are you the only one that knows anything? 
except for you, is all the church in error. And Luther says, I answered that God once spoke through the mouth of an ass. Now let me just clarify, that is a donkey. He's referring to Balaam's donkey there. Um, I will tell you straight what I think. I'm a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I believe freely and will be a slave to the authority of no one, whether council, university, or pope. See, what Luther is saying is that he's not going to submit to any teaching or doctrine, whether the council teaches it or decrees it or university or, or the pope says it. He will sit under the authority of Scripture and Scripture alone. And you see, it's at this point that Luther realizes that his desire to reform the, the Roman Catholic Church was no longer possible. He was only willing to submit himself to the authority of Scripture and no one else. With Wycliffe and Hus, he's now clearly a heretic of the Church. And so with Luther, sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, is a core doctrine of the Reformation. And it's a core doctrine that we as Protestants, in the line of the Reformers, continue to believe, continue to uphold. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, continues to be the authority that we must all submit to, to shape our church, our ministry, and our lives. But unfortunately, that is not the case with the Roman Catholic Church. You see, you'd hope that from the Reformation and what had happened, that the Roman Catholic Church would clearly listen. But unfortunately, they haven't, and they've actually gone further than where they were in the 16th century. Since the Reformation, the authority of the Pope and the councils of the Roman Catholic Church has not only increased more and more, but the authority of Scripture has decreased more and more. Where they are now today is much worse than where they were in the 16th century. So let me give you a couple of examples. So in 1854, you know, a couple hundred years after the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church declared that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was not born with original sin. And in fact, she never sinned at all. In her entire life, she was free of sin and free from sin. Uh, this teaching or dogma of the church is called the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Uh, so this is only about 200 years ago, right? 150 years ago, that the Roman Catholic Church decided to decree that Mary had no sin. This doesn't just contradict the Bible. It contradicts the plain reading of Scripture and the doctrine of original sin, that we, all of us who are born outside the Garden of Eden, are born into sin and therefore need the saving grace of God. But because the Bible can only be interpreted by the Pope and the bishops, no one can question this doctrine. Another example is in 1992 with the approval of uh, Pope John Paul II. The Catechism of the Catholic Church was published and you can still find it on the Vatican website because it's current, it's what it is today. And this is what he says, the task of giving authentic interpretation of the Word of God. So who can understand the Word of God? That's the question. Who can interpret it? Who can tell you what it says? The task of giving authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the tradition of the church, okay? So now they're bringing both things together. Has been entrusted to every believer? No. To the living teaching of the church alone. Okay, so the only person 
who can interpret the Bible and the traditions now, rests actually with the Pope and his bishops. This means that the task of interpretation has been trusted to the bishops in communion with the success of Peter, the bishop of Rome, the Pope. What this means, so the Pope and the bishops is, is what they call the magisterium. Made up of the Pope and the bishops, the magisterium, in fact now, sit above the Bible and the traditions of the church. They're up here now. And so only the Pope and the bishops can interpret the traditions and the Bible, what they say is what God says. Whatever the Roman Catholic Church now teaches is by definition tradition and authoritative. So as an example, the papal bulls in 1302 and 1441 declares that there is no salvation. Okay, So this is back in 1300 and 1400. The papal bull, what the Pope said back then, there is no salvation outside the church. Okay, that, That's what they declared. But what do we know from the Bible? Well, what we know from the Bible is that there's no salvation outside of faith in Christ. Okay, so their emphasis is the church, and our emphasis is the is Christ, because that's what the emphasis of the scriptures is. So John three thirty six says, "Whoever believes not in the church, but whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him." So, who is outside of salvation? Those who don't believe in Christ, not those who are outside of the church. So against tradition and against scripture, it was then decreed in Vatican II in the 1960s that there is now no possibility of salvation, not only for non-Catholics. Sorry, before, in the 1300s, they said there's no salvation for anyone outside the church. What they're now saying from Vatican II in the 1960s is that there is salvation for people outside the church. And so that means that if you are an Anglican, and you have faith in Christ, there is salvation. There's possibility of salvation. But what they've actually done now is gone further than that. They actually now say that there is possibility of salvation for pagans. So you don't actually have to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So they've changed the traditions of their own teaching from the papal bulls of the 1300s and 1400s. So authority in the Roman Catholic Church today don't reside, doesn't reside in the Bible, not even in the traditions of the church. It's whatever the magisterium wants to determine. That's why there is a big push for the Pope to now declare that homosexuality is okay, because he can do that. And that then becomes the teaching of God. What he says becomes dogma. What he says becomes church doctrine even if it contradicts the Bible, and even if it puts aside the traditions of the church. That is the power of the magisterium. And so, just as Wycliffe and Hus and Luther defended the authority of Scripture alone, we must do that too. Luther defined sola scriptura or Scripture alone in this way. The Word of God is and should remain the sole rule and norm of all doctrine, and no human being's writings dare be put on par with it, but everything subjected to it. So nothing can be its equal, because as we've seen, if it's placed as its equal, it will trump the word of God. It must always sit under the authority of Scripture alone, subjected to it. So let me explain now 
what sola scriptura isn't. There, there, there are two, two, two important things to, to, to note. The first is that sola scriptura, this doctrine, isn't denying that there's no authority apart from the Bible. There is authority apart from the Bible, isn't there? There's a government authority. The government has authority over us. Our teachers have authority over the students. Parents have authority over their kids. In fact, church leaders have authority to teach and to, and to lead and to exercise godly discipline and so forth. But church leaders and all of us who are in authority should submit to the authority of the Bible. Our authority doesn't come from anyone but God. Our authority, my authority as a church leader, must only come from the faithful teaching of Scripture and the practice that it demands. And so if an authority challenges the authority of, of the Bible, like that of a government, when a government tries to stamp out evangelism, for example, and gospel proclamation, we must submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture, not the authority of government. Uh, or like the parents who might try to stop their children from obeying Jesus. They must, children must, at that point, disobey their parents so as to obey Christ. Or like church leaders who teach false doctrine, they must not be obeyed. They must not be obeyed. The Bible must reign supreme. The Bible must always win, for all authority must submit itself to the authority of Scripture alone. So there is authority outside of Scripture, but all authority must submit to the authority of Scripture. That's the first point. The second point is, solo scriptura isn't nuda scriptura. That is solo scriptura. That is, all you need is the Bible and nothing else. Because that's the other extreme. Some people would say, oh, well, if we have the authority of Scripture and we have the Bible, then we don't have to listen to sermons. We don't have to read commentaries. We don't have, we don't have to read history and, and learn about church history. We don't need Christian books. We don't need fellowship. We can be Christians alone with our Bible and that's it. That's nuda scriptura. That's solo scriptura. That's not right. Not only did the reformers quote past theologians freely and authoritatively, they reflected on their experience and used their reason. They accepted uh, some uh, the early councils and the creeds of the church. They did this because they understood that they didn't sit in a vacuum, nor do we but they stood on the shoulders of great Bible theologians who came before them. In fact, Calvin uh, even said the ancient church is on our side. What sola scriptura means is that in all matters of faith and practice, in all matters of faith and practice, the word of God is the ultimate authority. Every doctrine and every moral practice must be grounded in scripture and scripture alone. If push ever comes to shove, Scripture always wins. Scripture reigns supreme, for Scripture is God-breathed. So in 2 Timothy, the passage we had read, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. It's his last letter before he dies. And, and what he wants to see is that the gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed even after he dies. And so he charges Timothy to preach the word in chapter 4, verse 2. And, and what's going to be the basis of Timothy's teaching? What, what must he proclaim? Well, Paul doesn't say, go and proclaim tradition. Paul doesn't say, go and add content. He says, scripture. 
It's what God has said and what has record, been recorded for his people all this time. But as for you, Paul says to him, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, scripture is going to be able to help you Make you wise for salvation. And how do you receive salvation? It's through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, don't go to the Bible to, to understand whether the world, that the earth spins around the sun or the sun around the, the, the earth. Uh, go to the Bible to understand how to be saved through Christ. That means that scripture is sufficient. You don't need to go anywhere else to find how to be saved. Uh, you don't need a pope to interpret it for you. Scripture is clear. Scripture is God-breathed. When, when God speaks, he speaks sufficiently and clearly. When he said, let there be light, there was light. His word is effective and true, and his word will not return empty. So we see this in Isaiah 55. God says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see, Scripture comes from God. Scripture reveals the mind of God and will do the work of God. Scripture is God's word, is God-breathed, and is effective. It will never return to God empty. And so, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And in this context, the good work is the proclamation of the gospel. But do you see here that when the Bible is taught, we need to expect that we're going to be taught and rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness. That means two things. What we think about salvation might be wrong. What we think about life in God might be wrong. We need to be trained and taught in Scripture. What we think about godly behavior might be wrong. What is right and what is wrong. What is pleasing to God, what's not pleasing to God. We might not have that right. So we might need to be rebuked and corrected. And the assumption is that all of us have to be taught and have to be corrected. That we're all wrong and that we need to hear from God so that we might understand correctly. You see, it's the Bible alone that determines right teaching and right practice. Not anyone else. Not anything else, even the church. Tradition must submit to the Bible. The teachings of any great theologian must be assessed with the Bible open. And so it's with this conviction. William Tyndale went about translating the Bible into English. Speaking to the clergy, he said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life, over many years I will cause the boy that driveth the plough to know more of the Scriptures than thou dost. He wanted to put the word of God into the hands of the common people and in a language they could read and understand because at that time the Bible was in Latin. So unless you were privileged and educated, you could not understand and read the Bible. 
In fact, when Wycliffe translated the Bible into English over a thousand years, a uh, hundred years earlier, sorry, it was translated from the Latin Bible called the Vulgate. But Tyndale, now with the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew, he translates it from the original language. And the contrast couldn't be more stark. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the Latin translation says this, Jesus began to preach, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But in the Greek, in the original language, it actually says this, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, Jesus wasn't referring to a sacrament of penance. He was referring to a radical change of direction. He was calling people to repent. He wasn't calling people to do penance. He was telling people to turn back to Jesus, turn to God in faith, not to be a good person. Another example is in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. The Latin translation says, Mary, full of grace. But the Greek actually says, Mary, you who are highly favoured. It's a completely different understanding. Because when the Roman Catholics interpret Mary full of grace, it's saying Mary is so full of grace, she must be sinless. Therefore, you've got this doctrine that she was born sinless and she can't sin. In fact, she's so full of grace that she exudes grace. So pray to her and she'll give you grace. Go to her relics and get grace. She's so full of grace. But actually, the Bible doesn't teach that. The original language simply says, Mary, you who are highly favoured. That is, you, you're, you're someone that God has favoured, chosen by God to do the work of God. Nothing more. It, it doesn't say anything about how much grace she has and whether she's got grace to give. How to be saved and what being a Christian man now look completely different when Tyndale translated the Bible from the original languages to English. In place of a formal external sacramentalism was now a call to the change of heart. And as you can imagine, the Roman Catholic Church was not pleased. And so English Bibles had to be smuggled into England, just as we used to have to smuggle Bibles into communist China. But the Roman Catholic Church thought that they could outsmart Tyndale. Bishop Cuthbert uh, Tunstall bought Tyndale's Bibles and burnt them. Just imagine that. You see, a, you see a bishop at Federation Square piling Bibles and burning Bibles so that Christians and people who go to church can't read the Bible. That's what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. In 1535, Tyndale was caught, and the following October he was officially strangled and burned near Brussels, by the Roman Catholic Church. And when he was, he said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He wanted the King of England to see that God wants England to read his word. Two years later, the King's eyes were opened. King Henry VIII decreed that an English Bible be placed in every church. People began to read the Bible. How amazing is that? and be able to understand the Bible, because it was in the vernacular, it was in the language, the common language of the people. They would gather to read the Bible, and if they couldn't read, they would listen to those who would read it. Private Bible reading became much more widespread, and rather than taking the priest's word for whatever he wanted to say, the priests were now asked, where do your ideas come from? 
The 16th century marked the beginning of a new era in which scripture reigned once again as the source and norm for all Christian doctrine and practice. And as we reflect on the implications of solar scripture for us in the 21st century, there are two things I want to encourage us to do. First and foremost, we must be Bible people. People who go to scripture alone to become wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then whenever we open the Bible, we must remember that it's a costly privilege that the reformers fought for and some even died for. You see, you might not have realized that until today, but blood was spilt so that you and I could open a Bible and read it in our own language. Every page we turn, we must see blood all sprinkled through its pages, like the blood of Tyndale, who interpreted it for us, who translated for us, I mean. And so we can honor the Reformers, our brothers in Christ who came before us, not by reading the Bible lightly or having the Bible on our bedside that's never opened, but by soaking ourselves in Scripture so that we might soak ourselves in the promises of God found in Christ alone. And so let me encourage you to read your Bibles every day. Make Bible studies a priority in your life. Bring the Word of God to bear on each other as you meet and check as we come together on Sundays with your Bibles open to check what I'm saying comes from Scripture and not from any tradition or any ideas that I might have. So the first point, let me encourage you to read your Bibles and soak yourself in the promises of God. Second, the reality is that we might not be in danger of putting uh, the Book of Mormons above Scripture or, or some certain tradition above Scripture, but I wonder whether, for us in the 21st century, what rivals the authority of Scripture is our feelings and our emotions and our experiences. That is, some of us might say that unless you have a certain experience or a certain feeling, then God doesn't love you. Then God isn't close to you. That God hasn't forgiven you of your sins. Uh, you see, our experience or feelings towards God then becomes a gauge for our salvation and our assurance. You know, if I feel close to God, then God loves me. But if I feel distant to God, then he mustn't love me and maybe I'm not saved. But friends, our relationship with God isn't dependent on our feelings, but in the promises of God. Not in what we think, but what God has said in Scripture. You see, when we base our assurance on our feelings, we undermine the Word of God. We subject the Word of God to our feelings rather than subjecting our feelings to the Word of God. We express disbelief in the promises of God when we say that our feelings and experiences matter more. And don't get me wrong, feelings matter. Our experiences are important but not so much as what God has said to us and promised us in Christ. You see, friends, we must be careful not to trap God's word with anything, including our experiences or feelings. We must believe the Bible is true because it's God-breathed. In fact, we must believe that the Bible isn't just true. It's truer than anything else, even our feelings and experiences. And so, friends... Let's continue as the reformers did, 
to uphold Scripture as the source and norm of all Christian doctrine and practice, to test everything and hold on to the good, to let God be true and every man a liar. Amen.